Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm very, very grateful that you've decided to worship with us this morning. Today, we close our series on 2 Timothy. I believe that the Spirit has moved in a powerful way through our congregation because of the words he inspired the Apostle Paul to pen all those years ago. Never forget, Paul is in jail when he writes this letter to his beloved protege, Timothy. Paul is in a dark, dank, cold Roman jail cell awaiting his execution. The death sentence has already been announced and soon he will be executed for his faith. Dying as a martyr, the same man who is responsible for killing the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, many, many years prior to this. Paul is very keen to make sure that his protege, Timothy, gets a final dose of encouragement from him before he leaves this mortal coil and is reunited with his Lord. Paul makes sure to tell Timothy a great number of things to encourage him, to inspire him, to make sure that he lives in the power of the Spirit, that he fans into flame the gift of God, which was given to him by the laying on of hands, the gift of faith, that he, Timothy, is responsible for fanning into flame. For the Spirit has not given us timidity, but the Spirit gives us power love, and self-discipline. And so as we come to the close of our book, 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. We will read the final verses. We will read verses 9 through 22 today. And this verse, these verses, you might think are not the superstar verses. They're not filled with the crescendo of verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. Or the closing of chapter 3, all scriptures God breathed. Or the power of chapter 2, laying out our very vision for the series. The soldier, the farmer, the athlete, fanning into flame, power, love, and self-discipline. Or the power of chapter 1, always be prepared and always deliver the true message. Yet, here... In the close of the book, we do see words of tremendous power. If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture in awe of God's Word? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to you, Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus sends his greetings, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. You may be seated. Did you catch it? Did you see the power that is on display It's not obvious at first, but one of the things that I need to do as the preacher of Glendale Christian Church is help to draw the curtain back, help to illuminate the power and authority of Scripture. For all Scripture is God-breathed and useful, not just what we might consider the exciting bits, but every bit of Scripture is truly exciting. And today, we can see, in fact, that the Apostle Paul closes his spirit-inspired letter to his protege, Timothy, with a tremendous word. Did you notice how he said, make sure to get here before winter. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. The Apostle Paul knows full well that his winter is upon him. And just as the seasonal winter is approaching, which would make travel very difficult in the first century, for to travel on land or by sea is very, very much complicated by the winter. And in fact, it's nearly impossible to travel during the winter months by sea. And so it's very important that Timothy hurry and get to Paul before his death, before winter comes in. But in our lives, we know that the seasons represent the stages of our life. In the springtime of our life, we're young and everything is new and growing. And in the summer of our life, we're at our peak and our power is strongest. And in the autumn of our lives, we see the change that starts to emerge. Wisdom starts to come and it's added to the excitement of youth. And just as the leaves on the trees start to change, so it is that even our hair starts to change. More and more gray creeps in. I'm entering the autumn of my life. I can tell. I look in the mirror and I see that every single day. I don't have black hair as I once did. I hardly have brown hair. I hardly have any pepper. It's just salt and that's okay. That's all right. We don't know when the winter of our life will be. For even as we grow older and older, we do not know when our end will come. At least not all of us. Some of us may be given a diagnosis and we recognize that we have a very short time of life left in this earthen body. Some of us may be given a death sentence pronounced upon us and we know that the end is near. But for the vast majority of us, we do not know when the winter of our life will come. But we know that when it does, and when we are in our final stages, it is very incumbent upon us to do as the Apostle Paul has done. To be able to say, as he said in verse, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. 
And there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge himself will hand to me. I want all of us to be prepared to face life's winter. For each and every one of us starts out with the understanding that we must train. Just as a farmer must train and develop his body to till the soil and work the ground, and just as an athlete must train his body to run the race, to fight the fight of the faith, and just as a soldier must train his body and be prepared to work in the service of his commanding officers, so too we must train ourselves. Which is why the beginning of this tremendous pastoral epistle of encouragement is all about fanning into flame the gift of God. We must do so, for life's winter will come. And if we want to face life's winter successfully, we need to keep the right commitments. Our commitments must be strong. And just as the Lord Jesus himself committed to his heavenly Father, his spirit, so too we must make the appropriate commitments in our lives right now so that when the winter of life comes, we may successfully face it. Yes, to face life's winter successfully, we must keep the right commitments. The first commitment we must keep is our commitment to God. In this world, we see that there are lots of people who have many, many commitments. And you make commitments in many different ways. There are some people that are committed to television. And they have their shows, they have their programs, they have their news that they watch. And they're very, very committed to watching the television. But I don't suspect that there's anybody who lies on their deathbed and reflects upon their life and wishes that they had watched more television. There are people who are committed to travel, and travel is a glorious thing, but I doubt that there are people who wish that they were more committed to travel than they were to God. I doubt that there are people who are in the winter of their life who wish that they were more committed during the fall and summer and spring of their lives to sport than they actually were. Sports can be fun and travel can be glorious and indeed television can be entertaining. But these things are not the commitments that we must keep. The ultimate commitment that we must keep is to God. And you might think, well, Andrew, are you trying to stretch a little bit right here? After all, where was the commitment to God in this passage? Did you not see it? Verses 17, 18, and 22 tell us a great number of things about God Almighty. And if we think back to these verses, 17, 18, and 22, we see a great number of things about God and what he is doing for us. One of the things that we can recognize is that God Almighty, God Almighty is sovereign, He's sovereign over all of Paul's circumstances. Paul finds himself in jail. He writes this letter from jail, as he's written many letters previously being imprisoned. And yet, Paul recognizes that these things are done by the will of the sovereign Lord. It's God Almighty who has orchestrated his life in such a way as to deliver him unto the jail cell. And the reason for this is very simple. Paul declares, so that the message might fully be proclaimed to the Gentiles, that they might hear it. 
It was important for Paul to be right where he was according to God's sovereign hand so that he could speak the message of truth even to the Roman emperor Nero. Oh yes, the Gentiles need to hear the message. After all, never forget, Paul was assigned to be the apostle to the Gentiles and it is his imprisonment that is allowing his message to circulate in the center of the Roman Empire so that the Gentiles might fully hear God's word proclaimed. Yes, indeed, his commitment to the Lord is strong. In order to keep our commitment to the Lord, two things must happen. The first is that we must have the right knowledge of God. We must know God. Our knowledge of God must be very, very strong. And think about what Paul says in verses 18 and in in, uh, verse 22. He talks about how the Lord was with him always. The Lord is with us always, even in the face of our disasters. When Paul finds himself in jail, on trial, about to be executed, when he recalls his first trial where everyone else deserted him, the Lord stood by his side, rescued him from the lion's mouth. And at the end of verse 22, he says, the Lord be with you all. Paul remembers full well the truth that Jesus is always with us. Think about the Great Commission. One of the very last things that Jesus said in his earthly body before he ascended to the Father, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Even in jail, Paul knows well that the Lord stood right beside him. And that's why he can say, the Lord be with you all. For he knows that the Lord is always with us, always ever present. And so it's true that God has a sovereign hand and it's true that God always stands beside us. But that's not all. God is also the God of glory. He talks about at the end of verse 18 how we must bring glory to God. Glory is his forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the glorious Lord, the Spirit is the glorious Spirit, and the Heavenly Father is the glorious Father. God Almighty, this triune master of heaven and earth, is glorious, and glory should be given to him, even in our lives, even in our bad circumstances. The providential hand of God and the providential foot of God, which stands right next to us, always receives glory. Whether our lives are lives that are committed to him that will smash, may they be lives that explode into a million glorious pieces so that he can be glorified through our destruction. Or whether we live long, fruitful, healthy lives, may our lives be lives that produce glorious fruit, that bring glory to him in whatever circumstance befalls us. The providential hand of God, the closeness of the Lord, And the glory of the Lord are important. But not just that. Notice how Paul ends this book. He ends this book, verse 22, by saying, Grace be with you all. Verse 22 is very, very interesting. It starts out with the singular. When Paul says, May the Lord be with your spirit, the your there is singular. He's talking directly to Timothy, his protege. But at the end, the NIV even translates it, be with you all. In the Greek language, it just says, be with you. But the you is plural. 
Paul has now shifted to the plural because the Lord is with all of us. His grace is with all of us. God's grace be with you all. And the grace of God is a truly wonderful thing. We must know God. That is true. And we must continue to train for God. But we must know him. And Paul ends his letter to Timothy with the single word that best encapsulates his ministry. And that word is grace. Paul is the preacher of grace. Grace is that wonderful element which saves us. To the same congregation that Timothy is the preacher, the congregation in Ephesus, Paul once wrote a letter to that congregation. And in the second chapter of that letter, verse 8, he declares, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. So that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good deeds he prepared in advance for us to do. Oh yes, we have a job to do, but that job always follows the receipt of grace. It never precedes it. You never work hard so that God will give you grace. Because God has given you grace, you are now enthused and encouraged to work hard. You're equipped to work hard. Grace is what saves us. And the story of the Bible is the story of God redeeming his people. The story of grace is the gospel. And the gospel is easy to understand. You all know the gospel. It goes like this. In the beginning, God, the perfect triune master of heaven and earth, who exists eternally as the heavenly father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, created the universe. And the very best thing that God created was humankind in his image. And God endowed us, each and every single one of us, with reason and rationality and choice. And God placed us in a literal, veritable paradise. And he only had that one command. Don't eat from that one particular tree. But each and every one of us chooses poorly. Each and every one of us follows in the footsteps of Eve and of Adam, and we sin. Now, sin is any time we purposefully rebel against God, or sin is any time we seek to do God's will but just fall short, and we all fall short. For the Bible tells us, through the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us get the job done. None of us on our own power are good enough. And because we sin against the perfect God, we're separated from him. For God is perfect. He can't tolerate being around sinfulness. That's a violation of his own nature. And so sin separates us from God. But the story of the Bible is the story of God pulling his people back to himself. And he keeps getting closer and closer to us. He shouts to Abraham, go to the land, I'll show you. He burns in the burning bush before Moses. He's carried around by the Israelites in the Ark of the Covenant. An entire temple is built around the Holy of Holies. And then the Heavenly Father sends the Lord Jesus to earth because he needs to be closer still. And so the very one that all humanity was made in his image takes on human flesh, becomes a human being, and comes to earth to live and to die and to be raised again for us. And so it was that Jesus is God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect and sinless life. And because he's God, he was the only one that could live a sinless life and perfectly hold the standard of God. He did it on our behalf. And even though he was sinless, he paid the penalty for our sinfulness. You see, Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 this way. God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it was a great cosmic swap. 
Our sinfulness got put on Jesus when he died on the cross and his righteousness gets put on us when we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead having died on the cross for our sins. And having been saved by God's grace, justified, we're filled by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who walks with us and helps us to keep in step with him. He leads us and helps us to do all the good that God created in advance for us to do. Yes, in order to maintain your commitment to God, you must know God, but you must also train for God. For as we know God, and as we know this gospel, and as we know the true doctrine, we must do something with it. And the thing that we must do with the truth of God is train. We must do exactly as 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, for the spirit God gave us doesn't make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And so it's incumbent upon our lives as we know God to train in godliness, to train ourselves to be godly. We have to fan into flame the gift of faith that was given to us when we received grace. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And so our job is to fan the flame of faith, to grow in power spiritually, to grow in love, and to grow in self-discipline. And that's why we've been focusing so hard on the spiritual growth plans and the spiritual health and training plans, because we must train so that our knowledge of God and our training for God can help us maintain our commitment even in the winter of our life. Yes, we must know him and we must train for him because we must keep our commitment to God. But there's another commitment that we must keep. If we are committed to God, we must also keep our commitment to God's word. If you are committed to God, you must keep your commitment to God's word. God's word is paramount in our lives. You know this, for just the book of 2 Timothy has focused exclusively on the power of the word of God and how the spirit inspires that in our lives. All scripture is God-breathed. Always be prepared to preach the word. Understand that you must grow in this area and grow in this area. The word of God is so very important Think about the excitement that the Apostle Paul has about the Word of God. He tells Timothy, hey, make sure you stop by Troas and pick up my cloak and bring me the scrolls, especially the parchments. He is about to die. What use has a dying man for the parchments and the scrolls? Every use. There is nothing more valuable on earth than the Word of God. It should be committed to memory. It should be held in our hands. We should read it every single day. It is our daily bread. It ought to be our daily delight. The word of God is so important. He's so excited to get his Old Testament scrolls, especially the parchments. He is eager to reread the words that he has committed to memory. And yet he still wants the word of God. There's an excitement there. May we be so excited about our commitment to his word, to his word. But it's not merely an excitement that demonstrates a commitment to God's word. There's something else. Excitement is there. And if there's any Christian alive who's not excited about the word of God, that's indicative of something ill in our spirit. For if our spirit is not excited about the very propositional words of God declared to us, written on our behalf, so that we can know him better, so that we can train with him more powerfully, so that we can grow more self-disciplined, what are we doing? The word of God must be everything to us. 
It should be the first thing we read, the last thing we read, the best thing about which we meditate. It should be paramount in our lives. But just because we're excited about it isn't quite enough. You need a second element for yourself to keep your commitment to God's word, and that is finding appropriate application of God's word, both personally and collectively. Personally, 2 Timothy is all about growing in power, love, and self-discipline. Written to a particular individual named Timothy, Paul's protege, who follows him and is the preacher of the congregation in Ephesus. He is supposed to grow in power, love, and self-discipline and share that with the rest of the world, the rest of the region, the rest of his congregation. And so too, we must grow personally. And our lives must live a consistency with the word of God. Use the word of God as a standard, as a rule. After all, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You can't do what God wants you to do without the word of God. And you can't do what God wants you to do effectively unless your life is in alignment with the word of God. And so if there be some besetting sin in your life, It is incumbent upon you to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to receive well the rebuke or correction from your fellow brother or sister. It is incumbent upon you, if you are not training, to use the scripture to train in righteousness. It is incumbent upon you to teach and to be taught by the word of God. Our lives must reflect the truth of the word of God. And so if we are walking a path that is not the scriptural path, turn around and start living your life according to the scriptures. It sounds so simple to do, and yet so many of us are remiss because we don't always seek to live our lives in accordance with the word of God. But he has declared for us what we ought to do, how we ought to be. And so very personally, as we grow in power, love, and self-discipline, the word of God is the means by which this works. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God in our lives. But it's not just our individual lives. It is also our collective lives. It's also our congregation. For Timothy is the preacher of the church in Ephesus. And while this letter, 2 Timothy, is written for him individually to inspire individuals, never forget that 1 Timothy was written with the explicit understanding, as stated in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I write you these things, says the apostle, in case I'm delayed, because he wrote that one not from jail, hoping he was going to get to come see Timothy, in case I'm delayed, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of truth. And you remember as we marched through 1 Timothy about deacons and elders and about how we ought to teach and about how we ought to conduct ourselves in church, uh, appropriate worship and different things, the collective is very, very important. If our congregation is not in line with God's word, then we have a problem also. God is blessing Glendale Christian Church in mighty ways. 
He's blessing us in mighty ways. He's brought us a team that can help lead us into a better knowledge of God. He's brought us leaders who can help oversee and shepherd us as we grow in our Christ-likeness. And he's bringing us numbers of people who need to hear the truth and who can grow more and more in their discipleship and turn around and make more and more disciples. Oh yes, God is blessing us. But how? Can we, in good conscience, expect God to multiply his blessing to us if there are practices here at GCC that are one way, but are maybe not in accord with his stated word? We ought to do everything we can to bring these two things into alignment. And so, just as I've been preaching about personal spiritual training for the last number of months, and Chris has as well, so too now we must talk about getting our congregation in line with God's word. To that end, I want to tell you about something that's coming up. Every church in America has bylaws. Bylaws are legal understandings that show that you are what you say you are so that you can maintain your 501c3 status, or 503c status. And so it is that every church has bylaws. And Glendale Christian Church has bylaws also. You can read them anytime you want. We don't hide any of them. But the elders, as we went through 1 Timothy, were getting ready to think about, are we doing church the way God wants us to do church. And months and months and months ago, in our preparation for 1 Timothy, the elders got us into a room and they asked one another, should we turn these boys, Clay and Andrew, loose to go through the bylaws with a fine-tooth comb and see where we need to improve? And to a man, all of our elders, all ten, said, oh yeah, cut the boys loose. Have Clay, have Andrew, go through the bylaws and look at them and see if there's anything that needs to be changed. Well, through prayerful consideration, we discovered that there were two elements that I think we need to align better with God's word. And so, in two weeks' time, we're going to ask you to vote on a bylaw change. And here is what the ballot will look like. This is word for, it's small, I know, but it's word for word the ballot. You can go see one on the hub if you want to. And so, there are two changes that we would like to bring about in the bylaws. First, is that we would like to do away with our congregational vote. Second, we would like to adopt language that allows for female deacons. Now, let me break both of these down real quickly for you. In the New Testament, there are no congregational votes for who becomes an elder, And there are no congregational votes for what the congregation ought to do. In fact, as as Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says, the Apostle Paul says to his protege Titus, appoint elders. Elders are to be appointed, and elders are to be the overseers of the congregation. And the first element that we are going to vote on is to get rid of our vote. In two weeks' time, I'm asking you to vote one final time. And on that final time, I'm asking you to say, following God's word as described in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we as a congregation will submit our vote to the elders. For right now, our bylaws say that the congregation has to vote on a great number of issues. And this is very American, and I understand it, and I love voting when it comes to politicians and school board members and everything of the like. But there are no votes in the New Testament church. We follow the will of God by his ordained overseers and elders. And I am ready to submit my vote to the elders. I vote as a member of the congregation, but not as an elder. And I am voting to get rid of my vote. Because I want to submit 
and trust God's appointed leaders to oversee and shepherd this congregation in a powerful, powerful way. And I hope that you'll join me in that. And second, we want to adopt language that will allow for female deacons. Now, the men of the church who serve as elders, they are the shepherds, they are the pastors, they are the overseers of the congregation, and in their wisdom, they have hired certain men like Chris and Clay and myself to serve as under-shepherds alongside them, helping them to do the work of pastoring the congregation. But in every congregation, there's more help that's needed. And so deacons are those that serve. Deacons are servants. And we need men and, I believe, women, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, to help in the service so that we can make sure that things are smooth for the entire congregation. Now, we already have a great number of women who serve as ministry leaders, and that's sort of the language that we've adopted to get around the bylaws never for allowing women deacons. But there are scripturally female deacons. In Romans chapter 16, Phoebe is explicitly called a deaconess, and there are a great number of women who serve alongside men in the congregational service. We have women who serve in this area and in this area, and I think that it's okay scripturally for a woman to even be in charge of a service team because she might be called and equipped to help serve the congregation's needs in a particular area. And so all I want to do is vote to remove our vote and vote to line up ourselves with Scripture by allowing females, possibly, to serve as deacons. They would still have to be nominated and they would still have to be appointed by the elders. But if you are willing to vote yes for these, in two weeks' time, you'll check the mark that says, I vote yes to adopt both these changes. And if you're not, then you'll vote, I vote no to adopting both these changes. If you would like to see word for word, very specifically, any changes to the language of the bylaws, out on the hub is a proposed list of all the bylaw changes. You'll see the entire bylaws. You can read the entire thing, and you'll see what language is taken out and what language is added to reflect these two changes. And you can prayerfully consider them, and you can go over them with a fine-tooth comb, just like I have, just like Clay has, and just like the elders have, and just like they've asked me and Clay to do. I invite you to join us in this. For how can we in good conscience expect God to multiply his blessing if in fact we are not doing church in accordance with his word? The word of God needs to be preeminent in our lives. Our commitment to the word of God must be huge. And if we can make a small change that demonstrates our submission to God's chosen human governance, which is elders to oversee this congregation, all the better. And so I ask you to prayerfully consider these changes so that when the winter of your life comes, you can remain committed to God, you can remain committed to God's word, and thirdly, that you can keep your commitment to God's community. God's community is so important. Paul is not a lone ranger, and neither are any of us. None of us are lone rangers in the faith. All of us must work together with community. After all, God is community. God is Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Before God created anything, God existed from eternity past as a perfect community. The Trinity, the perfect being, is three divine persons. And so too, we read a number of things from the Apostle Paul about the community. Think about all the names that he lists. Tychicus, in verse 12, probably hand-delivered this letter to Timothy, and he probably stayed in Ephesus so that Timothy could go and visit his mentor, Paul, in jail. 
Cretans, we know very little about him. Cretans is listed in this chapter, and yet all we know is that he's a faithful servant of God. Titus, the preacher in the uh, congregation at Crete, has apparently finished his work and has now moved on to Dalmatia, which is the modern-day Balkans region. And there's plenty of things happening in Titus's former stomping ground these days. We know that the Word of God must be everywhere. Luke is, of course, mentioned, and so is Mark. Luke, the great physician who's always by Paul's side, is there. He's the only one who's with me. But Paul asks Timothy to bring Mark. This is very, very important because years, years before, Paul and his best friend Barnabas split up as a missionary team, and it was Mark's fault. You see, Mark got homesick, and he left. He quit the missionary journey, and that didn't sit right with Paul. And so when Barnabas said, hey, let's go back and visit all the churches, Paul said, great idea. And Barnabas said, hey, let me bring my cousin Mark with us. And Paul said, no, no. No, He flaked out before. We don't have time to take him. And so Paul decided to take Timothy and Titus instead. And Barnabas went his way with his cousin, Mark. Now, this young man, Mark, he grew up a lot. And the Holy Spirit filled his life and he stopped flaking out. He grew up so much hanging out with Barnabas and the apostle Peter that he went on to write, oh, what was it? Oh, yeah, the book of Mark. That's how powerful this young man became. And so it is that Paul, who said, no, he flaked out. He can't come with me on my journey. I'm taking these other fellows instead. He now sees that this young man has grown, and he wants his true son in the faith to visit him. Bring Mark with you. He's a true son of mine. He wants even those with whom he broke up his missionary teams to come back and get the band together, to be reunited. Of course, he mentions Carpus, and that was Paul's host in Troas, and Priscilla and Aquila, the tent maker teachers who worked alongside Paul, because both Priscilla and her husband Aquila were excellent servants, and they both served the church powerfully. Erastus, mentioned in verse 20, was the city treasurer at Corinth, and Trophimus was a Gentile and a native of Ephesus. He was with Paul in Jerusalem when his enemies falsely accused him, of bringing a Gentile into the temple, and he was there. Now, of course, Trophimus was left in Miletus, and Eubulus, Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia are all mentioned. Now, what's very interesting is that the great early Christian um, Irenaeus describes uh, uh, Linus as the first bishop of Rome to follow Peter. Do you understand what that means to the Catholics? If you look at a Catholic Pope list, it goes Peter, Linus. The Linus that's mentioned here goes on to become Bishop of Rome, and he's a very important leader in Rome. After Paul and Peter are executed, Linus leads the congregation. Well, uh, Pudens is a very important nobleman in Rome, and he married a British princess named Claudia. Now, Pudens and Claudia, according to church history, go up to England and they start the churches in England. Well, the English churches are very much where American churches draw their heritage from. So right here in scripture, both Claudia and Pudens are described as our spiritual ancestors. This is very, very important to us because God never asks us to do this thing alone. 
He wants us to grow in accountability. He wants us to have friends around us. So if the winter of your life comes, don't isolate, don't be all alone, but instead, let the power of God run through your lives. And part of the power of God involves getting the community of God around you. Think about how you can serve the community. Think about how the community can help you. Whether you're in the springtime of your life or the peak summer of your life or you're starting to transition into the fall or whether winter is upon you, you must have the saints around you. You must have the fellow believers with you for they will provide you encouragement and accountability. This is so important. Yes, if you want to winter, if you want to face life's winter successfully, keep the right commitments the commitment to God, the commitment to God's word, and the commitment to God's community. Know God and train for God. Understand God's word and make sure that your life personally and congregationally lines up with God's word. And surround yourself with the community of God. To that end, what I would like for you to do very specifically this week is as follows. I would like you to read Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 56. I'd like you to read these 21 verses along with John uh, 18, 1 through 14, these 14 verses. I'd like you to look at these verses and I'd like you to ponder them and pray about them and think about them. For next week, we start our Easter series and I'm gonna ask you the question, can you see? I want you to read the word of God so that you can see what God is doing. And I want you to think very deeply about how Jesus provides a glorious example for us about being Father willed. To that end, please read Matthew 26, 36 through 56, and John 18, 1 through 14. In addition to that, I'd like you to contemplate. I'd like you to think very, very hard about life's winter and what commitments help us face it well. Life's winter is coming, whether you know it or not. Life's winter will be here. And I want you to think long and hard about that and about the commitments that you will need to keep in order to face that winter well. And then I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God will see our commitment to him through our actions. We say that we're committed to God. May it be seen in our actions as we align our lives personally and our lives congregationally with God's word, as we surround ourselves with God's community and as we grow in our knowledge of who he is, may God see our commitment to him through our actions. And lastly, would you please invite someone to the Easter series or to follow Christ? I don't care if they come to this church or another good church. I don't care if they live here or somewhere else in the world. I want you to invite someone who's local to our Easter series, for I think the word of God will be powerfully proclaimed. But I also, and more importantly, I want you to invite somebody to know Jesus. It doesn't have to be at Glendale. There are many good churches, but I know that this is one. And may we always be a congregation that grows more and more in love with God, his word, and his people. Would you stand with me as we pray?